Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A couple of quick things before we kick off. We are live on Sunday the 28th of January in the Sugar Club for Podcast for Palestine with an incredible lineup of special guests, some very special guests, live music and plenty of entertainment. All proceeds are going to Gaza, so Get your tickets now on eventbrite.ie. The link is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. It'll be a great night for a great cause. And I hope to see lots and lots and lots of you there. And I also need to remind you that the Tortoise Shack is completely reliant on you. We've no ads, we've no sponsors. The only way we keep the show on the road and can continue to have the type of conversations that you're about to listen to right now is if some of you chip in, pay it forward, and keep it free for everyone. And the easiest way to do that is patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. So if you can go without the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month, give it to us. Help us keep the show on the road in 2024. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for liking, sharing. Please come on board and I hope to see lots of you next Sunday evening. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and folks, we are back. And just just before we came on air, I got a right berating for yet again dropping the ball. I was sloppy. So I want to say on air, Martin, I'm sorry. I dropped the ball. No, 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 no. We all make mistakes. No, no, no. Honestly, I never do. That's the thing. Never, ever, ever. (laughs) 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 Tony's always right is what we're going to get tattooed on on your arm for Christmas next year. Um, Look, uh, look, just a quick one for you on that. The reason that I'm I'm plugging it now is because I was supposed to put put out a podcast just before Christmas about you going to go get your money that you're owed you listeners yeah. there, there is money owed to people for the state using NAS surveillance and Martin had the story uh, and we we redone it so we put it out and of course I never published it on time so apologies for that but go check it out it's with Owen Odell um, and it'll all make sense once you listen to it Martin that alright? That's perfect thank you and uh, talking about Christmas presents uh, our guest today gave the oh, best Christmas not, present not, in the world to us. We're not going to go. He there. gave her COVID on Christmas Day. Welcome, Richard. How are you? <laughs> I'm just about over the COVID. She got over it quicker than me. That's the only compensation she got. She- the funny thing was, our sons were coming for Christmas. I told them on Christmas Eve afternoon, guys, I've got COVID. Are you still coming? They thought about it for about a millisecond and said, shops are shut. We've got no food. We're coming for Christmas. Sod COVID. You're the only option left. <laughs> <laughs> food made the difference. And did Absolutely. They, did they escape it, Richard? They did. Yeah. Good for them. Good, good. Good for them. Good to hear. Um, look, Richard Murphy, uh, folks, as you know, is our resident uh, of, of uh, Plague Island, as we lovingly call it all the time. And Richard is obviously coming into 2024 with a sense of optimism for how things are going to get better in the UK because he's written a piece for the for the National in Scotland about five reasons why you simply can't vote for Keir Starmer's Labour. <laughs> so, so Richard, before we go to these five reasons, I put it to you that we're going to be seeing elections throughout 2024 framed in this way that uh, the alternative you have to you have to vote hold your nose and vote for Keir Starmer because the alternative is is the other guy. Similarly, we'll see the same play out in the US where it's you'll have to vote for Biden because the alternative is the other guy. Um, what do you make of that argument? Look, if I was in the US, I have to say I see some argument for voting for Biden because Trump is pure evil and he's likely to be the candidate. Um, would I have to have a mighty big peg on my nose to vote for Biden right now? Yeah, of course I would. 
Um, is there much other alternative? You know, John F. Kennedy Jr.? Really? Are you kidding me? No. God, his father must be turning in his grave to see what's going on. So, look, you know, I just don't see an alternative in some elections. I don't see an alternative in the UK elections, but to say, let's vote for the least worst option. I'm not going to have a candidate who I can vote for in my constituency in the UK in the forthcoming election who I am going to be excited by. Um, Even if a green stands, there's no chance of them winning here. I'm really keen to get rid of the Tories. Yeah, hardly surprisingly. Um, any sane person is keen to get rid of the Tories. I mean, talk about um, running out of talent, um, running out of ideas, running out of competence, running out of everything. So everybody wants to be rid of them. But the choice of Keir Starmer, really? TCP, as I now call him, the Tory continuity party? You know, Lino, Labour in name only, and TCP. You know, it's, he smells as bad as TCP, if you can remember that stuff, which they always used to clean. Did they clean schools in Ireland? Well, well, TC, TCP it, was our aftershave. How dare you? Well, <laughs> we have actually TCP, and it's true. Over here, it did, I don't know what it actually stands for. It was Tomcat's piss. It was. <laughs> I mean, why? What was it for? Anyway, TCP is my new name for the Labour Party because they are just the Tory continuity party at present. And that's my massive concern about them. So, yeah, I'm going into this year of elections full of optimism that we're going to get a great outcome. But Starmer's doing great in the polls. Look, why is Starmer doing well in the polls? There's a number of good reasons. First of all, he's not Rishi Sunak. Um, well, I mean, that's I, the number one. <laughs> that is the number one, and actually, as far as I can work out, the only reason why he's doing okay in the polls. And when you have a first-past-the-post electoral system where you know we genuinely have not got proportional representation, uh, vast numbers of people will say, if it isn't Sunak, it's got to be Starmer, you know, because that's the way lots of people were brought up. Um, if it isn't Tory, it's got to be Labour. Now, that's not true in large parts of the country. And I think I made that point in the national article. Well, of course, I made that point in the national article. It was written in a pro-independent Scottish newspaper for whom I'm a columnist. Obviously, in Scotland, there is a choice of the SNP to actually kick Starmer out in Scotland. Now, the SNP is not exactly covering itself in glory either. Um, frankly, economically, a deeply neoliberal party that is also looking as though it's running out of a bit of steam, is having to go through a transition, had a former leader. Last two, Last two, two leaders, leaders have ended up in, in uh, under caution. A little bit of bother, shall we say. Um, and I knew one of them. I don't, I, I've never even met Nicola Sturgeon. Um, so, but, so you knew Alex Salmon, the one who actually got charged, I think, in the end, didn't he? I know Alex, yeah, yeah I've met Alex um, quite a number of times. Um, I think he was a silly boy. Whether he was really um, guilty of the charges laid against him, who knows? The court decided not. So let's leave it at yeah. that. But the point, the po- and, and that's good enough for me. That's how justice works. But the SNP is not a perfect option, but it's a better option than Labour, is what I'm saying in Scotland, because we need to have proportional representation in the UK. Otherwise, we're going to carry on with this rotten political system. In the south of England, and I'm in the south and east, I'm in East Anglia, so, you know, that bump on the right-hand side of England, we have choice. It's the Liberal Democrats. Do I like the Liberal Democrats? Am I excited by anything they're really talking about? No, not really. 
But is it better than the Tories and Starmer? Yeah. Why? Because at least they want proportional representation. What would I do in Wales? I'd be voting for Plaid Cymru. Why? Because that's better than Labour. This is really suboptimal electoral choice. But I'm saying that's what, that's what people need to do this year because Starmer is just hopeless beyond imagination. Absolutely appalling. I saw him during the week and he was backpedaling on a promise or a commitment he had made about the private schools. And it was kind of stark, Richard, how badly he was backpedaling on this commitment um, to, to get rid of the charity status for private schools. And he simply said, well, no, we're not going to do that. Is is that part of the the problem with Starmer is that he flip-flops at an, an amazing rate? I'm not sure he flip-flops. I think he actually came up with a series of statements that he and policies that he put into place to win the election against Rebecca Long-Bailey, who was clearly Corbyn's chosen candidate after Corbyn had failed in 2019, so early 2020. And he made all these commitments, 10 fairly okay-looking commitments to somebody who was yeah, genuinely of the left, a real social democrat, and those who were socialists in the Labour Party, able to appeal to both those groups, who surely are what the Labour Party is going to be made up of historically and always has been. Um, and he's not flip-flopped, he's just abandoned them all. I mean, flip-flopping would imply that he might go back to some of them. He's never returned in that direction ever again. So, you know, taking that particular example on private schools and charity status, he hasn't, he's now abandoned that commitment. He said that's what he'd do. All he's now saying is that he'll make them charge VAT on the supply of private education, which is very different from being a abandoning charity status because charity status for private schools provides quite a lot of further benefits to them here with regard to tax-free income and issues with regard to business rates that they might have to pay if they, and there's question about what he's intending to do there at present and all sorts of other stuff. It's, it's just typical. Everything is just somehow, oh, I've gone and talked to my rich mates and they don't like what I'm proposing, so I'll give it up. That's, that's not um, fair. And because he seems he to have an awful lot of rich that's, mates That's, that's not fair. He likes to tell everybody how he was born working class. Because that's the, uh, that's the, I know, I know, I know, I know we're signed about it, but there is this element. I, I, and I would, I would push back on one thing you said there entirely the idea that there's now much of a left, left wing left in the Labour Party is, there is, it, 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 he's hollowed it out. And, um, he, like, I mean, some of the, the, the talk of how they had to do it, you know, this is what you, this is grown up politics. And, um, there's a whole series called, is it eight years hard labor? How they had to get rid of Corbyn was one of the, is this entire series that's out there at the moment? But just on, on the, the big pledge, the big promise. Can, can yeah. I just jump in there though about what they're doing, Tony? Because I mean, I was actually asked to go and talk to a constituency labor party in East Anglia. Not that long ago. It was um, in Kings Lynn in Norfolk. I'm going to be quite clear about where I went. They told me I could be honest about it. Um, the branch secretary, who's a man I've known for 20 years, um, thoroughly good guy, stood for Labour um, in that part of the world five or more times for Parliament without ever having a hope in hell of being elected. But the sort of guy who's so committed, he'll keep on keeping on, um, which is the backbone of what Labour was Um I will call him a socialist, and I don't think he'd mind me labelling him as such, because um, he is. Um, and they invited me, and they got a message down from on high to say, you're not allowed to talk to Richard Murphy. 
what are you doing inviting him to a constituency Labour Party? That's how effective the mechanism mm. is. You know, they don't want people like me who are critics of Starmer and Streeting and Reeves talking to the membership because they have to hear the same sanitised message that... Th- Starmer and Reeves and Streeting know what it's all about and critics mustn't be tolerated. And they are trying to wipe it out. They invited me anyway. God knows the party, I don't know whether Peter Smith, the secretary, has been expelled as yet or not. Another CLP secretary came onto my blog the other day and I put up his comments because I've known Dan Howlett for many years, 20 plus years again. And he just said, you know, Labour's in a complete mess. We aren't told what's going on. They aren't asking the right people. They're not doing the right things. They haven't got the right systems. And Den is a massive IT specialist. And you know, again, I suspect Den's days as a party secretary are numbered because he's broken the rules. He's spoken to the wrong people, said the wrong things. This is what Labour's like. We are not tolerating in the Labour Party anything which is in any form dissent. Starmer can't stand that. Does that leave a situation in the UK and I'm talking UK, United Kingdom where the regions, Wales, Scotland Northern Ireland actually have different elections to the to England England, is that actually the situation? Yes, very definitely and Scotland is the clearest indication of that and I know Scotland fairly well and I know Wales fairly well, my son lived there for three years I go to Wales quite a bit, I like Wales I like Scotland, I don't know Northern Ireland as well, although as you know I do visit um They are definitely different elections. Obviously, in the Northern Ireland situation, the parties are different. I mean, the Tories turn up, but they're not really a player there. Um, So the parties are actually different in Northern Ireland. um, And it's a complete shock to some Tory um, politicians that, you know, in Northern Ireland, people vote on sectarian lines and apparently they don't even know that. I mean, they're that stupid. They didn't realise that nationalists tend to be Catholics and Protestants tend to vote unionist and the alliance sits somewhere in the middle and picks up some votes. In Scotland, there is a clear divide still. There is still a very clear independence, non-independence, unionist line. And although Labour thinks it's going to win a lot of votes, I do actually think that the unionist independence line is pretty powerful. And some people will forgive the SNP its failings despite that, because they look at what Starmer's doing and say, yeah, but he's opposed to Scotland at the end of the day and they don't like that. Plaid is obviously not as powerful in Wales. So the Lib Dems are pretty weak in Wales. The Tories are going to be wiped out in Wales. Well, the Tories are going to be wiped out all over the place. Um, so it is very much that there is the coastal strip of Wales, the western coast of Wales. It is literally a strip right down the coast, which is the Plaid country, right up from Aori, Snowdonia now, right the way down to the south coast, there is a strip of plied seats, but they're small in number. The South Wales Valleys are all still solidly um, Labour, and that's where the power is in the Welsh Parliament. But they are different elections, yeah, definitely. And in England, I mean, I was speaking to somebody who's politically aware only the other day, um, the weekend, and this person is genuinely quite aware. And he said, oh, whenever something comes onto the television with regard to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, I turn it off. I'm not interested. Mm. There is just this complete indifference. And at some point, because England doesn't care, there is going to be this divide that independence is going to be claimed by these places because they've had enough. 
there will also be financial reasons, Richard. And I put it to you that one of the big problems we see now is there's ne- neither party, but particularly the government that are the incoming government, should it be the Labour-led government, are already backing away from the type of spending that the UK economy clearly needs and that you've ad- advocated for, whether it be via a just transition and a Green New Deal. They've dropped these spending limits. And, ne- and you know, and again, I'm, gonna, I'm going to put on this little devil's advocate hat because I'm, you know, you listen to, if you read enough of the Guardian, they'll tell you they're only doing that because they want to, not to scare the horse until they get in and then they'll be ambitious. Um, Richard, tell me, tell me they're wrong and that, that, that he's actually, this is who he is, he is who he says he is. He is dropping this and it is Tory light. Look, if they, this is Tory light, let's be clear. There is no other plan. How do we know that? We know it because of Rachel Reeves. You know, it's almost impossible to tell what Starmer thinks. Frankly, that was you know, and that was one of the reasons, the first of my five reasons in the national why you shouldn't vote for Starmer. Basically, I think I summarized it as he's a megalomaniac without ideas who's seeking power. Um, you know, we know he's desperate to be prime minister. We haven't got a clue why he wants to be prime minister. And as far as we can tell, he hasn't got a single policy in his brain. Um, I mean, I can't work out what policies he's got now that can anybody else. They say they've been, I've been so clear with you. I always say that, which always means they've said nothing which provides any clarity whatsoever. But if we look at Reeves, we do get to understand what this is about. And we get the same indication from Wes Streeting, or as he's now widely known, Silly Boy Streeting, because there's a great NHS commentator who has renamed him as Silly Boy Streeting, and I think it's very appropriate. Rachel Reeves is an ex-Bank of England employee. She has a pure... Oxford understanding of economics, which is neoliberal to its core. She worked for the Bank of England and believes that they must have independence and they must control interest rates and interest rates are the mechanism to control inflation and to keep the economy under control, which means that you always guarantee a recession. Um, and she says they will be allowed to run their own policy independent of her if she is chancellor, which means the fiends that's the nicest word I can use, um, of Threadneedle Street, where the Bank of England is, are going to continue to impose austerity on the UK by imposing massive interest rate charges. She believes in all that, and she believes that she has to balance her books and her budget, because that's what she learned at Oxford, and she's never heard anything else. Keynes, don't know how to spell it. Is it in a place just north of London with Milton in front of it? You know, it's about as good as that. She doesn't seem to know anything about deficit spending. She doesn't seem to know what fiscal policy is. She doesn't seem to understand anything about fiscal multipliers. And if you spend money and invest, you create growth. And that in itself pays for the cost of the investment that you've made because your tax revenues will rise and incomes will rise. None of that is apparently known to her. She is going to balance the books come hell or high water. You know, there's that lovely... um cartoon which you must have seen at some time on twitter which was well we didn't win against climate change but for a glorious moment we balanced the or, or we we, we created shareholder value or insert whatever the equivalent is whatever yeah, it i might just be. want to say one quick All thing Martin, those... before you question just on the point though it's really important that people say you know the governments aren't household budgets we have to stop imposing uh, these rules on ourselves these financial rules on ourselves and the eu is still as guilty of that as others in terms of the fiscal compact and how yeah. and how we have to color outside the lines we need to get what 
wide to this because the level of investment that's going to be required across the EU, including the UK and others, just to just to stand still with some of the, the challenges that are coming is extraordinary. And you know, we need to be we need to be bloody we need to cop ourselves on. And, and the and the US doesn't give a toss about fiscal. But that's because they're building. They that's because give a that's because they're. Their entire economy is built on debt currently, but it's got. But as Constantine pointed out to us recently, there's no value in. There's no. It's not producing much value either. Even though no. the, you know, the headline rates look good. There's. It's the same in Ireland. Ireland's GDP is off the charts, but individual consumption is back where it was in 2010. Yeah. So look, we know that Ireland's GDP figure is just Mickey Mouse economics. Yeah, you, know, you have to look at GNI in Ireland because GDP is so distorted by corporate tax profits and a few companies distort all of that. So GDP is meaningless in the Irish concept. GNI is more useful and GNI is not a good indicator of anything in Ireland at the moment because people are not clearly benefiting from this supposed growth. Yeah, you, know, you might have a government surplus. Yeah, great, fantastic. That's meant to be the sign of prosperity, is it? Hmm. Tell that to the homeless people of Ireland. Tell that to the people who can't afford a home, etc., etc. And Ireland is going to face this problem with this massive new pressure for a new fiscal rule and a 3% deficit now. Okay, Ireland hasn't got a deficit, but it's going to see all the feedback from that, all the consequences of that, all the high interest rates from that, which at the moment are coming out of a German-driven drive for austerity across Europe. So Ireland is in real trouble as well. The curse of the fiscal rule is really the challenge that we're facing across the whole of Europe at present. Because it is that curse of this idea that we can write a fiscal rule and if we comply with it, we'll all be living in nirvana, you know, wonderful times, is nonsense. The only thing that matters is not a fiscal rule, it's an economic rule. And Keynes said it, we can afford to do anything we can actually achieve. So if we can beat climate change, we've got the resources, the people and so on to do it, we can afford it because doing it pays for itself. But the fiscal rule idiots who put money before consequence and doing things have got it all wrong. They got everything the wrong way around. And they are the absolute enemy of humankind at present. I can't put it more bluntly than that. And it's so arbitrary, Richard. The fiscal rule is so arbitrary. Oh, they rewrite the rules whenever it suits them. Because if they fail, they just say, well, we were going to balance the books over a five-year cycle, but now it's a seven-year cycle. Yeah, Gordon Brown did that in the UK in around 2006 or something when he failed his first fiscal rule. They always rewrite the rules. It's always arbitrary. What is borrowing? What is investment? You know, you can change that. So Gordon Brown said PFI wasn't borrowing. Uh, Yeah, it was actually, Gordon. Um, and so on. I mean, I've just been doing a pile of work with what is the UK national debt, and all of that makes no sense either. Um, just before Christmas, I said, you know, the UK national debt, which they're all obsessing about, is a trillion quid less than they're claiming. A trillion. That's not much, you know. <laughs> we're talking about a thousand billion or a thousand thousand million here. And, and or a thousand, 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 you know. Come on, this is a lot we, of money. When we get to billions, it's very hard for people to actually grasp you know, the the magnitude of difference between a million and a billion and the difference can, between a billion and a I trillion try, yeah. is again I, orders of Can magnitude. I just put, try to put a bit of scale on this for listeners because it's, it's something I, I, it's been, I've been reading a little bit more about it as well myself, Richard, over the Christmas and, you know, two-thirds... You ought to get a life. I know, you really ought I to know. <laughs> two-thirds of the largest economic entities in the world are companies. 
So of the hundred and fifty yeah. of the hundred and fifty top big largest entities, oh, you know, we're talking hundred and three of them are are companies. They dwarf the you know the global economies of of all of these other countries, and that is the situation whereby they don't have to play by these rules. Yet we want to impose these rules on ourselves to make to make lives much more difficult and this is a huge problem that when when we talk about i know this is but particularly in the uk where they wanted singapore on the thames where they wanted to do all of this that model is not gonna is not gonna work much longer richard you've been talking to us about the fact that you know deprivation rates are up homelessness is up um Mm. the lack of affordable housing is is creating chaos and now the alternative is the, the alternative is not actually hope. The alternative is to hang on, <laughs> um, and it it seems to me that if we're gonna if we're gonna be honest with people now, the the change that we actually need it's gonna have to somehow and people like you are gonna be responsible for this somehow talk about that other song that you've talked about before and it has to come from bottom up because it's not coming top, top down. We really, well, you, I always say there's a better song to sing. Um, I really think I should try and write my um, song this year, only it won't be a song because I'm uh, not going to do that. You know, I could go and pick up a clarinet. There is one not far from me at this Martin moment. Martin sings lovely you really don't. <laughs> you really don't want to hear it. Um, so, look, we do need the most massive transformation and there are some really important things to achieve that transformation that we have to address. One is most people don't understand what money is um, and they think it's scarce and actually it isn't scarce. You can have as much of it as you like. It's just the score. It's like saying, hey, hang on a minute. We'll cl- <laughs> a football match gets to five goals. We'll end the match even if it's only 14 minutes in. Um, because we can't have any more goals in this match. There's a ration. It's that stupid to say that money is rationed. Literally, money is just a scoring mechanism. That's one of its purposes. That's called a measure of value. Um, you know, I, I love the fact that a kid in um, uh, India, um, I think it was last year, scored a thousand runs in a cricket match. Um, you know, he was about a 13 year old and he scored a thousand runs, but he proved the point there is no limit. To the score in theory that you can run up in a you know in a time period, if, if you're really good and you can knock the ball out of the ground, which you obviously could. So money isn't understood in that way. They don't understand that banks can make money at will. They pretend they can't. So they say the central bankers have got to repay the money that we created for QE. No, we don't. Um, COVID pay for itself by simply doing money creation. They say we have to pay the bankers to take money from the state. I mean, literally everybody else gets a pittance when they put some savings in the bank. The government in the UK created 900 billion of cash because of spending the deficit in 2008 and 2020. And they've been paying the banks 5.25% to take that money off their hands. This is going to be 40 plus billion pounds in the UK in the last year. And then we spend another 70 billion subsidizing the savings of the wealthy. And you wonder why our whole economy is well and truly down the swanny. Because we're spending all this money to support wealth and we're not spending money to actually help people. We have such a screwed society. And we've got to keep on saying that. And yeah, I'm, I love the fact that on my blog, we've had over the last five days massive debates over money, its origin, and how we should be using it. And people turn up. I mean, God, it takes me time to clear the, the comments because you know some of my posts are getting well over 100 comments per post. And these are intelligent, long, thousand-word comments. 
and I'm having to read them all because I do. But it shows there's an appetite for people trying to learn about where we're going, what we're doing. And right now, everything that is being taught about economics is complete and utter nonsense. I spoke again recently to a young man, I mean, 16. He was talking about his A-level choices. Over here, A-levels are, you know, your eight, the exams you take at 18. And he's just finishing his, what are called his GCE exams, which are what you take at 16. And he said, should I take economics? And I said, no, don't take economics. You will learn nothing useful and a hell of a lot that is harmful to your well-being. Take politics if you want, but don't take economics because it really, really is going to teach you utter nonsense. And until we relearn, until we get our politicians to relearn, that we actually only have one constraint, and that is the number of skilled people we've got in our economy, and nothing else matters, and that everything comes down to the labour of those people. This sounds desperately Marxist, so they won't like it, of course. I'm liking it. Keep going. I'm liking it. <laughs> I've read enough Marx to know what I'm talking about, and I'm actually not a Marxist, but it, obviously he got this right. Value is created by people's work, not by the finance system. Until they understand that, we are up the swanny, and we've got to understand it, because without that, we won't deal with climate change. Do you get a sense... Richard, I, I get this sense, so I'm going to share it with you and ask you to get this sense. I get the sense that the status quo, which has existed 30 to 40 years, is coming to an end right across the globe. This status quo that created wealth for themselves, and they changed from wealth creators, we'll say 30, 40 years ago, to wealth hoarders, and they've changed all the rules so that they can hoard the wealth. But the status quo, the center, as we discussed the last time we were on, has changed. It's not where they are anymore. And that what we're going through is a change in status quo, which will mean a change in ideology, in ideology and in practice and in finance and in everything else. Look, I think you're right. Um, you know, Gramsci's comment, the old is dying, the new is yet to be born. God, it's waiting a long time. This thing outdoes an elephant. Birth. In <laughs> of an elephant um, you know we've been waiting for it but um, I think the new has got to be born or else we're going to have collapse into chaos these people are parasites and let's be blunt about it they have tried to collect all the wealth for themselves and people are beginning to see the consequences of this let me give you another example of that and I wrote about it this morning at the time we're recording and that's the post office sub postmaster scandal in the UK where the post office, owned by the state still in the UK throughout this whole period, commissioned Fujitsu um, to create an accounting system for post offices. And there was a flaw, a fundamental flaw in the post, post office system. And it said that cash was disappearing when cash never disappeared. And over 750 sub-postmasters were challenged, prosecuted, sued for lost money, etc. And none of them were in any way fraudulent as far as anybody now knows. These people were just set up. But the arrogance of the people in charge, those libertarian people in charge who were told, you're worth it. That incredibly valuable line. How do we know you're worth it? Because you're paid a fortune because you're the chief executive. You can't be wrong. These people who have this libertarian view that the world should be run for their interests, not for everybody's interests, said, 
these people, the small people must be wrong. We must make them pay. And now we've had a series on ITV in the UK, which has exposed the suffering these people have gone through. And now everyone's in a panic. But I think it's insights like that. And it's going to be an event like this, a television series or something, which is going to make people suddenly open their eyes to the fact that this corruption is universal. These people are simply fleeting the rest of us. The post office management fleets the rest of us. The software manufacturers fleece the rest of us. You couldn't make this up, by the way. The husband of the chief executive of Fujitsu is married to the education secretary in the current Tory government. You know, that's there's true. no yeah, incestual yeah, yeah, nature. Yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah, absolutely true. And these people are fleecing us. They, I'm not saying they're criminal. I'm just saying the system is designed to extract wealth from all the rest of us. And people are really living on the edge. You you know the line I'm going to use already. The crime, Richard, we like to say, is what's legal. And that is often the problem. The crime is what's legal. They define what's legal, of course, yeah. If you can, so, you know, Ireland, if you want to believe it, has very low uh, white-collar crime. Now, the fact, you know, that even when we had the financial crash, um, we had no forensic accountants in the Gardaí actually able to check into what happened but obviously you know it must have all been okay and now we see only yesterday a headline saying that the banking lobby are upset that there may be fines possible under new central bank rules to fine individual bankers for for bad practices saying this could lead to financial ruin hello (laughs) (laughs) and so it should guys fine should be it should be actually something that makes you it's a deterrent to doing something so, just, it, can I just raise a point there? These guys love to call themselves entrepreneurs. Yeah. But they never want the downside. Now, actually, I have really created businesses. I would call it at least five significant businesses I've helped create and grow and so on in my time. So, I know what it is to be an entrepreneur. And I've always taken the risk on the downside, losing my own money. These guys have never taken a risk on losing anything. And I had a wonderful session shortly before Christmas with Rachel Johnson, brother or a sister of Boris on LBC in the UK. And some person, and I can't remember who his name was, can't be bothered, came on and accused me of being an ivory tower academic who had no idea what I was talking about. And I just told that story. I've created real businesses. I'm a chartered accountant. I've been senior partner firm. I know how business works. Don't you call me an ivory tower academic. Because sure as hell, I can do ivory tower academia if you like. I publish those really obscure journal papers that absolutely nobody reads because they're so opaque that nobody has a chance in hell of understanding what you're trying to say. That's why we write them that way, guys. Um, (laughs) That's how you get through peer review. But yeah, I can do that. But I've got real world experience. I know how the system works. These people who keep on telling us about the virtues of the banking system and these large companies, they've never put a single penny of their own on the line to take a risk because they always want the upside and they want the downside to be with somebody else. Exactly what the post office was trying to do. And it's, 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 it's actually, to pass I suppose, sorry. We- we have to talk about the fourth estate in all of this, Richard, because there is responsibility on the fourth estate. And just, you know, no risk, just an example of that. The the Irish national broadcaster, RTE, admitted during the year that it owes $20 million for PRSI evasion, for misclassifying employees as self-employed, and the government has committed to bailing it out. 
Now, you Crazy. can't. You can't. It's illegal to do so. It's simply illegal state aid to do so. And yet the government has committed to do so. And not a single journalist in the whole of Ireland has raised an eyebrow. Now, I'm going to go to the EU with it and I'm going to say, no, you can't bail out fraud. You simply can't. Hang on a minute, though. You've had RTE doing that. I think HM Revenue and Customs have misclassified employees in the UK and bade them as contractors. I mean, it's that good. I mean, this you know this abuse, which is all designed to get around paying social yeah. security, which is and social security is the contract. It yeah. is the social contract. It's the social contract. I entirely agree with you, Martin. This is a whole thing. We live and fall by a social contract. You have a fundamental choice in life. You can have a politics which is about individuals and fundamentally those who've got wealth and power vote much more than the rest of us in that type of politics because they're the powerful individuals. So they win. Or you can have a politics which is about society. Those are the fundamental choices we've got. At the moment in the UK, we only have, except in the Greens and perhaps SNP and except perhaps Blykheimer and some, of course, of the parties in Northern Ireland, we're not seeing parties who are about society. We're seeing parties about individuals. That's what it's about. And that's the sickness at the heart of our politics. We're only about me, 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 and not about us, 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 and care, compassion, commitment, cooperation. Um, those are the things that we should be driving us, and we're not getting them. Cooperation so important. Co-creation is the other word I might use there. You know about the basis on how which we create value. All of those things matter, and everything of value begins with one of those C's, as far as I can see, and nothing begins with P, which is profit. Richard, one. Do you think so, that? No, sorry, just go one ahead, final Tony. question from me. We're heading into this. We're in early 2024. Uh, change globally is is afoot like it's you know india is going to the polls all of the biggest elections in the world and biggest countries Mm. are going to take place this year i am concerned that we're slipping closer you you guys think that we thought that the financial crash would 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 teach people a lesson then we thought covid would be the opportunity and and we've Mm. missed both of the boats on these we haven't Mm. taken the chance I'd be, I'd be, I'd be worried that you're both wrong. That the new is, the new isn't coming. Actually, they're just going to be doing um, hyper, hyper uh, neoliberal capitalism. Uh, and but do you, uh, do you see any change to that? That's anything to to pin a, a hope onto. Hang on. I said the new is waiting to be born. I didn't say it's going to be born. Fair point. <laughs> um, I'm afraid point. to. Uh, (laughs) I will, in my own defense, make that point. I don't think there's any guarantee that we will get what we need. There is a real chance that we will go through fascism first. And that's what scares me, Whitless. (coughs) It really does worry me that we are facing, you know, so many right-wingers. I mean, the UK might move towards... Starmer, but that's not a move to the left. Whatever the UK media, the fourth estate is saying here, yeah, oh, the socialists say, I mean, oh, stop being stupid. Um, but we have Modi who's going to try and, you know, consolidate his power. We have Trump who, you know, God knows we might get in the States. And we have right across Europe threats from the right wing, um, right across Europe. So look, we are in deep trouble. Um, we are facing a period of enormous stress. Um, 
it's a moment when, you know, I ask myself, what am I, hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? Because actually this isn't the moment to shut up. It's not the time for you guys to shut up. It's not the time for me to shut up. It's not time for lots of our friends to shut up because we have to keep talking about the fact that there is another world that is possible. And the fourth estate, the formalized fourth estate is failing. But we are part of the fourth estate. You know, I was quite shocked to discover my blog <coughs> has one-seventh of the readers of the national newspaper in Scotland. Hmm. Why? That's the only why, why, pro- why were you shocked? That's the only pro-independence newspaper in Scotland. And by myself, um, I'm getting you know, one-seventh of the readership of a newspaper produced by 14 people. Well, I was shocked by that ratio of number of staff involved because I knock it out before breakfast by much, um, and then get on with what I call the day job. But I guess I was shocked that, you know, as a media, um, it's got reach now. And that's sort of quite important and powerful and carries responsibility and a duty. And I feel all those things. And I just wonder, does the editor of the mail feel any of those things? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) I know. You know, I worry about this and the fact that I seem to, as a consequence, have a message to supply, although lots of people help deliver it because of the comments which are normally very high quality and yet we have a duty to keep talking because until my last breath that's what i'll do um i'm not giving up on anyone and we're going to try to create a better world because it's possible that's all i can say about it and i will keep talking about it even when the odds seem insurmountable so you're right tony there's every reason to feel depressed about 2024 there's every reason to worry about the shit that our politicians are talking. And yet we can keep saying they're wrong. There's a better thing we can do. There is understanding. And sometimes you have to get inspiration. I was listening to Alan Greenspan this morning. Now, Alan Greenspan, for those who don't remember, was chair of the Federal Reserve in the States and a real hard line right winger. Right to the end. Right to the end never, ever admitted any of his errors, in effect, although he did admit he was surprised by the recession in 2008. But he said in one interview, which I'm going to put up on the blog sometime, that two things. One was the state can produce as much money as it likes without limit to achieve its purpose. There is no limit. He knew that. He was chair of the Federal Reserve. He could create money whenever he wanted. And he also said to a right-wing senator in the States, Look, it isn't how much we've got in um, pension funds that make wealth in the US. That isn't the definition of wealth. Cash in a pension fund is just a number. It's what you do with it that matters. And this is what the neoliberal world has forgotten. They only look at the numbers. They don't look at what you do with it. And that's what is really going to persuade people to change because they're going to say nothing's happening. They're not getting flood defences. They're not getting houses. Flood defence is particularly important in the UK at this moment. They're not getting houses. They're not getting schools. They're not getting the concrete removed from hospitals, which is literally making the roofs fall down. They're not getting the treatments they desire, everything else. It's when they say, but why not? Oh, there's no money available. But hang on. 
There is money, isn't there? How can't we? Why can't we make money? Or you can make money for whatever, but not for us. Yeah, you can make money to pay out 40 plus billion to the banks a year. You can't make money to pay for education. Why? Yeah. This is what's eventually going to piss people off and make that change, I think. But it's just going to keep continuing. One of my colleagues is called Colin Hines. He's the guy with whom I co-created the Green New Deal. And Colin, um, there's that children's... No, it's a song in a film once about a ram that kept hitting its head against a dam until that dam fell down. And he calls the process that we are involved in ram damming. We've just got to keep on hitting our heads against that dam until that dam falls down. I think Frank Sinatra sang it in some song. Um, yeah, film. He did. He did, yes. And I did. can't remember how the rest of it goes, but he calls Book this ram damming. goes it. another uh, apple tree. Oh, no, that's that a rubber it? tree plant. That's the one. Dum, dum, ba dum, ba dum, ba dum. And the, and the ram keeps hitting that dam until it falls down. Well, we've got to keep hitting that dam until the damn thing falls down. I changed the dam in the middle of that. One in, one out, without. And that ram is there, and we're the ram. And so the people are listening. You just got to keep on talking about this until one day that whole edifice of neoliberal capitalism, which is preventing the well-being that we deserve, is going to fall down. And it will. And there'll be a better system we can do. Well, preach, Brother Murphy. Preach, Brother Murphy. <laughs> and thank you very much for coming on and having this discussion. Of course, we agree with you. We wouldn't be talking to you otherwise. But I would I would like just a little uh, anecdote to finish on Greenspan. When the financial collapse came, one thing Greenspan did say he was is he underestimated how fraudulently greedy people are. Yeah. He completely underestimated it. Yeah. They all think do you see this is the other fallacy of the invisible hand in the market keeps control of them. That's not that's not the case whatsoever. No. What? He he was actually shocked at how far people would go to to break the rules to enrich themselves. He was actually shocked at it, and I thought for a guy who was who was rabidly neoliberal all his life that he didn't get it until end of days. You know, the rest of us got it long ago. Listen, yeah. folks, we're going to be back in your feed soon. Thanks again to Richard for joining us. Uh, I have to keep apologising to Martin for the rest of the, the rest of my he life. Doesn't, I, he if, doesn't, if I don't, Richard, you notice he won't talk to me and he won't feed me. <laughs> talk to you He's an awkward fella, but I think he'll forgive you in the end, oh, Tony. I am so awkward. You <laughs> yeah. Talk to you soon, folks. Bye-bye, bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.